I was standing outside the elevators with our broker and the other owner of the office. And I, I said, I, I don't think I could do this anymore. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. To join our community, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and receive five free benefits. First, you get the risk reduction checklist I've created from the lessons I've learned from all my guests. Second, you get my weekly email to help you increase your investment return. Third, you get a 25% discount on all ASTOTS Academy courses. Fourth, you get access to our Facebook community to get to know guests and fellow listeners. And finally, you get my curated list of the top 10 podcast episodes. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from ASTOTS Academy, and I'm here with featured guest Karen Briscoe. Karen, are you ready to rock? Yeah, let's do this. <laughs> That's my radio voice. Yeah, let's rock. Yeah, you're in the right field. <laughs> yes, exactly. I should have had a microphone a long time ago, so ladies and gentlemen. Given you one. Let me introduce you to our audience. Karen Briscoe is the creator of the transformative five-minute success concept. <laughs> Who doesn't like that? I love that. Her first book, Real Estate Success, is in five minutes a day, Secrets of a Top Agent Revealed, offers a combination of information and inspiration delivered through memorable stories. You'll also notice that it's got amazing reviews on Amazon. I believe right now you've got four point, uh, let's see, what do you got? 4.7 out of five with 164 reviews. I'd say that's pretty darn successful. Karen is the host also of the 5-Minute Success Podcast, which has ranked number one on Overcast's most recommended in the business category. <laughs> but beyond all that, Karen is the principal owner of the Huckabee Briscoe Conroy Group with Keller Williams. The group has been recognized by the Wall Street Journal as one of the 250 top realtor teams in the United States. My goodness, Karen, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. Well, I'm delighted to be with the Worst Investment Community and you, Andrew, and to talk about a lot of these learning lessons that have come along the way. And I know that you just did the highlights there, so we're going to get mm. in deeper. Yeah, exciting. And, you know, here I am in beautiful Bangkok, Thailand, and I'm just curious, since I got an expert on the line, tell us a little, little snippet of what the heck is happening in the U.S., housing market, property market, what, how do you, tell us a little bit about that. Well, you shared that I am a, what's known as a mega real estate agent, which means I run a team inside of Keller Williams. And in 2020, our team sold over hundred million on track in 2021 to do the same. So we sell a lot of houses and I feel like I've through the years have become kind of the economist of the area. I write a market study and obviously author of books and podcasts. So what is going on is, is several factors. The easiest one to explain first is COVID. Mm -hmm. So during the early days of COVID, when there were stay at home orders, 
people found out that their homes maybe didn't meet all their needs. And if they realized that if they were going to be working from home, educating from home, entertaining from home, exercising from home, everything from home, that they wanted to, to make a change. And I think hmm. that it created a lot of urgency for people because they were like, well, gosh, if I don't do this now, when am I going to do it? I want to be where I want to be if something were to happen. So that started the role, but we were going to already have a housing shortage in the United States for several reasons. The first one being the largest generation ever in the United States was the baby boomers. And that population is about 79 million. And most housing was built for the baby boomers. After hmm. World War II, if you, you know, study you know, the history of, of uh, economies, and that housing stock hasn't really changed. There ha is new housing, but it has not kept pace. In fact, the other key aspect to this is that in the decade since 0809, 2019, 2021, in that decade, the builders built about a fifth of the amount of housing stock that they should have built. And I'm talking about new houses, not just replacement houses, <laughs> mm. or in, but actually, and builders need land to do that. They need land for single family. They need land for townhomes. They can build condominiums and generate a lot of housing. But during the time of COVID, people wanted natural physical distancing. Mm. So the baby boomers normally would be at a state in their life where they would be starting to downsize right size. Many of them had started to move towards more of urbanization and smaller footprint. And then COVID happened and they're like, everybody came home. I can't do that now. I need to keep all my space. In fact, I think I'll buy a second home. So I have a place to go in case we need a place to go. Mm -hmm. The Silvers, which are the older generation, older than the baby boomers now, they really are not likely to want to go into assisted living or nursing homes. Now, they may move in with family, but they're mm -hmm. not leaving their housing, which they would normally be doing. That's interesting. I didn't think but about the that. Yep. biggest wave that's coming down the pike is the millennials. Mm. So the millennials are 91 million. So there's about 12 million more millennials than there are baby boomers. Remember how I said most housing was built for the baby boomers? We were already going to run out of housing. It was coming. We just didn't know when because the millennials had been delaying their adulting years. And they were extending their, their you know, 20s and 30s. And but with COVID, many said, well, gosh, if we're all stuck at home, we might as well get a dog, get married, buy a house. And we were going to run out anyhow. So, I mean, this was coming. Mm. It just all came at the same time. Right. So what's going to change this is, it, well, first of all, a lot of things have to change. I mean, we need more housing built. We need other people on the life cycle of housing to move into other housing. And people are moving, but we as an industry during that, for sure, the, the three months of most stay-at-home orders for most of the states, we lost that three months of inventory going on the market. Mm -hmm. And then we have not caught up. So it's, right. demand is like gravity. So when is it going to change? It's going to change when you start seeing supply and demand in line. But I think this trend is going to last for a while because I believe that situations like pandemics have very long memories 
Mm. Um, we saw it after 9-11. The safety security needs of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is, well, if you think about it, I mean, what was the first is, you know, you're just your physical needs. Well, think about what we ran out of first was toilet paper. So you don't get to work physical <laughs> now, right? And now we're running out of housing. So we're running out of these key I say running out of, we just don't have enough of it. And you can't build a house fast. And then you have other issues such as construction costs and that kind of thing. Well, it just reminded me of how I used to walk straight from my car into the airplane at the Long Beach airport without any security. And the Maslow hierarchy of needs basically says from 9-11, like everything's got to be locked down. So yes, that's an interesting point. One question I have about what you've said is that When we look at that 79 million boomers coming in, is it possible that there just really wasn't that much supply of houses at that time? And so nowadays, as these millennials come in, there's a huge supply of houses. So do we really need to build 91 million new houses and 79 million new houses in the boomer time? Or is it about refurbishing old houses or is that old inventory is just going to be dead? Well, people are living a lot longer. I mean, the people that used to would have passed away mm-hmm. and their housing would be revitalized and turned over into the next generation are not <laughs> passing away. I mean, people, life cycle. Okay, uh, life, so that's another lifespan. Just, that's the other thing. But the, the thing is, is we already had a delta loss. I, I mean, a delta of not enough between mm. 79 million and 91 million. So even if they all paired up, we were already short about five to six million. And if you look at the trends of other industries, I remember it when my children were in elementary school. They couldn't they couldn't add trailers fast enough because the population of the elementary school students, the baby boomers, were birthing the millennials. Yeah. And that trend followed all the way up. Now there will be a change because the next generation after the baby boomers. There's 15 million less of them. So that's when you'll start to see the change. But in the meantime, we need to house all these millennials while we continue to house baby boomers. And the other thing is that you didn't mention is that interest rates have been, you know, at kind of all time lows. And that gives purchasing power to the buyer. It does also create some urgency because as interest rates go up, then they want to move forward. Yes, that's true. And when people look at, well, housing prices are going up and I'm like, well, actually, if you just took the trajectory of a four to 5%, which is a normal appreciation for housing over the last 15 years since the crash, we're just where we should have been. We just are doing it all in one big swoop. And the market actually needs this, believe it or not, Andrew. Mm. And this is why. Housing is valued by lenders and appraisers based on comparables. So comparables that have to close and settle. So if every next sale is based on the last sale, you'll never go up, mm. right? So the market needs new transactions of time where buyers will pay over comparables. They will waive appraisals, bring more cash to the table, pay cash outright and not even get a loan in order for more sales to be higher for the next home to be able to sell higher. And this really truly is one of these things that really, I believe the market needs about every 10 years. And we haven't had one since, you know, the 02 to 05 range. So we're Mm. actually 20 years, 15 years behind. There's so many questions I have uh, because we got an expert on. So maybe I'll just ask a couple more and we'll get into the story. The other thing that, you know, 
what's amazing about the U.S., and it's very different from, let's say, in developed Asia, as an example, is there's simply no way a bank could give you a fixed rate 30-year mortgage. But in America, that's, you know, typical. And for a bank to hold a 3 to 3.5% three fixed 30-year mortgage, they're going to die. I mean, what happens if rates go up? And so I suspect that most of the banks are pushing this on to Fannie they Mae and Freddie it. Mac. They're no, pushing it. They don't it. hold it. It's yep. all Fred, Freddie and Fannie driven. Right. Yeah. So that, that's a unique thing about the U.S. market where we have a secondary market in the U.S. that just doesn't exist in many, many other countries, which means the federal government ultimately finances that by funding Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac through long-term borrowings that are close to treasury rates, let's say. I believe that that's the main source of funding. I haven't looked at Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. But ultimately, if interest rates rise, it's not going to be the banks that are going to be holding that potential loss. It'll be Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. It would, would that be- investors are sold. Yep. They're sold. So they're, the investors are holding it. Yep. Yes, I can see how you would say that. If you think about the economy, though, being able to move the velocity of money. <laughs> mm, mm. Um, so when the bank has to hold the money, hold the paper, then there isn't any velocity. So this creates velocity. And as goes housing, so goes the economy. I mean, think about everything that is generated jobs and and economies based on housing. Because yep. so th- there is some, I say, justification for it. I understand it. It really comes out of, you know, the again, after what happened after World War II, and they realized they needed to stimulate the economy and housing is going to stimulate the economy just about as fast as anything. I have a theory, and that is that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac could now probably be privatized and rather than be on the government's side, that government did a great job at setting it up and getting it going. It would cause interest rates, it would cause Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's funding to rise, the cost of their funding to rise, but it may actually prevent some incentives of super low, you know, being able to do super low rates. But of course, super low rates are fantastic for the consumer, but sometimes that can bring risk. Like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac experienced some pretty troubling times, you know, in the last, the 2008 crisis. Well, that market really was different, okay? Because mm. this is not my first rodeo. I've actually right. been through several of them. Yes. <laughs> I've done real estate since early 80s. Uh, this is a different rodeo. So what was different about that was that the lending guidelines were so loose. Really, you really just had to breathe and show up and sign. Yep. And right. now and the lending guidelines do follow the you know credit and collateral. And Does and that mean so that I remember FHA was pushing Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to have more and more loans that were at lower and lower quality because of a political motive at that time, which was fascinating. And then they had to push the banks to get those loans, which then brought maybe a million new borrowers into the market and home buyers, which then put a lot of pressure on prices, as I recall. Does that, does that make sense as to what happened then? Yes, it was, it, it was a, you know, which was, you know, for swagging the dog, the, uh, there was a lot of demand for, and there was demand to keep the economy stimulated and there was demand to, so it was in a lot of ways artificial. This yep. is different. Okay. So this is different because we really do have people who need houses. <laughs> I but, mean, it is real as it is. I mean, I see them and I, I get back to this is not my first rodeo. And I'd been through the savings and loan crisis in Texas and I, that was different too. That yeah. was, 
really driven by the funding costs shot up when deregulation of deposit rates. Yeah. Yeah. So that was those were different. This is really driven by true demographic need. So that's great. And I think that's interesting. And that's a great point. So I, I really appreciate the discussion. I have one last little question about this. You know, when we look here in, in, you know, I was just looking across the Asia, the Philippines economy crashed by 9% negative. Thailand and all their economies, the only economies in Asia that didn't have negative GDP were Taiwan and China, which were both roughly about 2%. But all the others had negative and Philippines was the worst at minus nine. We're getting crushed over here. There's like this huge economic crisis caused by COVID. And then I'm just looking like, is there a crisis in America or is the COVID like you'd think, like millions of people are out of work. Or like I, I noticed, for instance, my, one of my nieces, I would call her kind of the Zoom class or maybe the Zoomers, where she's got a great job. She can work from home. You know, she's getting no cuts in salary. She can travel around the world, in fact, or around, you know, around the U.S. and do her job from anywhere. She just borrowed some money and bought a house. But is there really a crisis going on in America or is it just, just a kind of a, a small blip right now? Oh, I'm sure there are people that are challenged. I mean, there, it really, anytime you have something, you know, of this impact, there are people. The people who are, their professions or their careers are based on intellectual knowledge. In a lot of ways, it accelerated their professions in a way that, you know, would have taken maybe a decade to get to. And it accelerated some industries like, you know, for example, Amazon. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I I liken it to my my parents are in their late 80s. And I never thought I would ever see the day where they would buy something online. But (laughs) Walmart will deliver it to them and they believe in Walmart. And so we had some major, major paradigm shifts of people, the way they looked at things. And because that kind of change happens, there's a lot of disruption, but it could be, it could be, you know, it's what, what is it? The, the symbol of, you know, if a crisis is, you know, opportunity, opportunity. and danger, yep. right? So mm. there's always going to be some people that are going to be impacted and, yep. and certainly there should be a provision for them, but the people that are in professions and industries that are, you know, there's a lot of them that have huge growth, huge mm. growth for the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I will say the more related it is to that Maslow's hierarchy of needs. <laughs> that pushes the, everybody. Yep, It does, because those are, ba- when you talked about about 9-11, that's why I feel like that this impact of the pandemic is, is several years at yeah. least. Yeah. We have very long-term memory about, we as a human race have very long-term memory about these kind of things. It changes mm-hmm. behavior. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, changes, that's when you have real change. Ladies and gentlemen, that is an update on the U.S. real estate market by Karen Briscoe, who is absolutely an expert. And it, she's also a five-minute success expert. We went over a little bit over five minutes, but if you want to learn more, go to her podcast. You can come to the show notes or just go to your podcast app, Overcast, or on your iPhone and type in, Five-minute success, and you're going to find Karen giving a lot of great value. Well, now, after that amazing discussion, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, 
Tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it, and then tell us your story. Well, I told you this wasn't my first rodeo. <laughs> so I was in commercial real estate, and when I, in early 2000s, went over to the residential side, and it was in a rising market. You know, it's, it, there's a uh, the quote that don't confuse brains with a right with a bear market, right? So it may be just you happen to be in the right place at the right time, right? Mm. And I was doing very well. I, I met with success very rapidly, and that came to the attention of one of the top agents in our market area who happened to also be number ten in the entire nation. So that's Sue Huckabee. So when you made the introduction, the H in, in HBC. And she asked me to join her, become a partner, and I did. And that was in the 06 era. And then we were still selling houses at like, you know, crazy numbers. But then you could feel the market shifting. And because I was in uh, real estate in Texas, I felt it shift, but I, I will say it, you know, didn't move fast enough. But what happened was I took over this very high-end luxury business with high overhead. And Sue was ill and she passed away in the summer of 08, or she passed away in September of 08. We transferred the company in the summer of 08, passed mm. away in September of 08. You know what else happened in September of 08? Financial markets crash. So looking, you know, at that time, it felt like the worst investment decision ever. About six or nine months later into it, I was like, oh my gosh, what have I done? I was considering making other, going into other areas of real estate, like brokerage or being a broker or management or something, because it was just, it went that far, 180 degrees, that hard. And the overhead was just- What were the main types of overheads that you had to pay? Like you writing checks and going, oh my God. Yes. <laughs> well, she was running a very high luxury business. And at the time, print media was the way most of the marketing was done. And so, you know, there was this one magazine, luxury magazine, that was $5,000 a month for the back cover. And, and she had always had the back cover. So I was like, you know, if I don't have the back cover, then what does that mean about, you know, my ability to carry on? And I remember calling the publisher. And I said, so what would happen if I, you know, drive like a contract? What would happen if I just, he goes, oh no, you just need to tell me. And then I called it back. I was like, okay, I'm telling you. Telling you. <laughs> and you know, there, like I said, some of it was hard to move fast enough. It was like a big ship, you know, you're moving it. And I, you know, there was a number of times where I was like, did I, you know, maybe I should have just stayed a, you know, a single agent and, and done my deals and, taking on this huge business. So that was my, at the time, felt like the worst investment decision ever. So what know. was like the worst part? Like, can you remember the check you had to write or the time that you just realized that I can't, I can't go on with this business the way it is? I was standing outside the elevators with our broker and the other owner of the office. And I, I said, I, I don't think I could do this anymore. And so that was when I started exploring my other options. And I think I would have had a great career doing that. So I, I, it wasn't, it was good that I had other options, but yes, it was that like that one at, you know, staffing, you know, you have employees and, you know, what do you do making decisions about people that have been with you a long time. And, and the main thing was the, the market's perception of the fact that I would have failed mm. you know, Sue Huckabee because she was very dear in the community and I knew her from church. And so the idea that I would go to her husband and say, I, I can't do it. And 
So, but that was kind of part of my, how I got out of it, if you will, or mm. how I moved forward is a better description. I did go to him and I said, okay, so it's really not going to benefit you or me if I crash and burn. So he worked with me. I had a, a past client who came to me and said she was interested in getting into real estate. And I'm like, really, really? You want to sell houses now? I mean, this is when it's the bottom of the market. And, but it was that renewed energy and spirit. And I, I was originally going to let her take over the company and I was going to do something else, but mm. that renewed energy helped. And, you know, we, we, we didn't make any money that year in 2009. And, but 2010, we, it was the other reason why it was so hard, Andrew, was that every deal was so hard. It was the era of the short sales and foreclosures. And there's, there's no money. So much in, pain out there. Oh my gosh. And the people, their stories, it was so, you know, that really is, it was just emotionally hard. Mm. <laughs> it was emotionally hard to help people through yeah. to the side. God, there's nothing worse than knowing people need help and knowing you can't, you're not in a position to help, you know. Well, I, in the sense that we, we were able to help a lot of people. It was, we, I found an attorney who started a, kind of a program to help people through short sales mm. and negotiate with the banks. And so we learned a lot, but it took several years to work through all that. It was not an overnight. <laughs> How long did it take till you could say, okay, we're kind of back to where we were. Oh, we didn't get back to where we were the last year. Yeah. Well, that's oh, an- yeah. 2020 was the first year the team production was back up to hundred million, which is what Sue had been selling. That's a great lesson right there for the listeners. Yeah. You know, look at just the Thai stock market. I came into work in the Thai stock market in 1993. It was at its peak and it fell by 90%. And it took, you know, almost 30 years and we're just barely touching that prior peak. So never underestimate how long it takes to get back to where you were. And so that's, you know, where the five minute success came in because many people, you know, learned how to navigate the, challenging market, the crash and recovery. Mm. Mm. But I had the added circumstance of my partner dying. And that really had a lot of people, you know, really want to know how I did it. And so I was doing a lot of coaching and speaking and training. And over and over again, I would hear from people that they didn't have enough time. <laughs> and that that was another one of my my big epiphanies along the way was that I felt I didn't have enough time either. Mm. And so when I came up with this idea of, well, do you have five minutes a day? The whole five-minute success concept came about. And it was this epiphany that the I was at a, a training event, a coaching event, and we were all supposed to share what was stopping us from doing, being what we wanted to be. And I had this light bulb go off. I was like, well, I'm the only one stopping me Hmm. because I can change me. I kept waiting. I kept waiting, Andrew, for the market to change or my husband to change or, you know, people to change or things to change, situations to change for me to have more time Hmm. or money to do both to write the book and to, to work on the things that I wanted to work on. And I had a perception. I had a faulty perception, a limiting belief perception that if I took the time to do those things, then my business would suffer. Right. And so that that was also part of my whole limiting belief. Mm. Uh, So what I I found over this last, you know, five-year journey is that 
investing in myself is actually the best investment ever. It, it is the greatest asset. And even Warren Buffett says that. So when yeah. people ask him, well, what's the best investment? He says, invest in, in yourself and your knowledge and your, your, your skills. So let's, your let's summarize what you learned. Well, I learned that investing in myself is worth it. I am a worthy investment. My ability to create value is my highest ability to, to do anything, much more so than any asset, right? right? My knowledge and my ability to create value and help people is my greatest asset. I learned that. And I also learned that I'm very resilient. <laughs> you know, when the pandemic hit, it had it brought back a lot of memories, mm. right, of the crash. I'm sure, you know, other people have experienced that as well. Like, what's going to happen to the economy? Are people ever going to buy a house again? Are they ever going to leave their house again? And I had some kind of flashbacks, if you will. And as we worked through the, the pandemic, and we did, we worked all the way through. Virginia was mm. considered an essential real estate essential service. We were with banking, and we were allowed to conduct business. As we worked through the pandemic, we really, that's what we realized is how resilient we are. Hmm. That's, yeah. I mean, maybe I'll share a few things that I take away from your story. Yes. I think first thing is, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that's great about getting older is that we have a, you know, somebody asked me about some, about confidence. The young person said, you know, do you ever lose confidence? And I said, I don't lose confidence I'm more worried about people losing confidence in me these days and my ideas and my implementations than I'm worried about losing confidence in myself. I can charge on in anything. And I've, once you made it through, I say confidence to me is built by overcoming, having a record of overcoming challenges. And then you start to feel better. And I feel like you reminded me of when this whole pandemic came, the first thing that I did is basically say, okay, we're going to have to cut, but we're going to make our business better through this. Now, follow me. Let's go. And we did make 2020 a great year. Now, my other business, my coffee business, which is a, a roasting business supplying coffee, you know, suffered tremendously as opposed to, let's say, that intellectual capital business. But we knew my business partner and I had been through this before. So I think the first thing that you remind me, and, and for all of the people that have been through a lot of experiences, take those experiences and turn them into your confidence. The second thing, you said a couple of things that I wrote down. The first one, I, as you said, I can change me. Yeah, I just almost have tears when I think about that. And I just love that quote, and I love that concept. And I just want to tell the listeners, you know, you can change yourself. You can do it. There is no Guarantee you can change anybody else or anything else. Maybe, but probably not. But you can change yourself. So that was something I really liked and, and what you said. Now, last thing is, you remind me of when, when the darkest hour for our coffee business, it was after the 1997 crisis in Thailand. And I had lost my job as a banker, as an analyst, and our business was just, you know, on the ropes. And we moved into our factory. We were out in the countryside in Bang outside of Bangkok. And I found a book. And the book was called The Six-Month Fix. While you were um, talking, I went to Amazon to go look at it. It's called The Six-Month Fix, Adventures in Rescuing Failing Companies. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But basically, it's written by a guy named Gary Sutton. And the first line of this book just really, really 
pissed me off when I read it. Karen, oh my God. He said, hello, Mr. CEO. I'm the turnaround guy. When I come, you leave. And I turn around your business because I can do what you can't or you won't. And that just got me so fired up to say, I'm going to read and learn everything I can from this guy and show that I can change and I can. And I would say the core message comes, you know, down to the one thing you can control in your business today is cost. And you describe that about having to go and say, I've got to cut that advertising budget. I've got to cut. Now you're never going to get rich from cutting costs. You've got to get that upside. But in times of crisis, the first thing that you can do is cut costs and you can control that. So that's some of the things that I took away. Is there anything you would add to that? Well, that was a great summary. When you talk about changing you, one of the things that a quote that I that really helps me is the quote by Jim Rohn, and that is, change the way you look at things and the way you look at things changes. Because <laughs> changing, changing you is first going to mean change the way you look at things because whatever got you here is probably not going to get you there. So you're going to have to change their perspective. And every time something happens and we're all like feeling like, you know, what are we going to do? We just start thinking about different ways of looking at it. And you could get kind of creative and fun too with that. Yep. But you changed the way you looked at things. And that's what enabled you to change. Mm-hmm. Love that quote. Just more gold, dropping more gold on this episode, Karen. I appreciate it. So based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Is to take action. What you focus on expands. What you put energy into is what you're going to receive back. And if you want to attract something new in your life and or you want to attract anything good in your life, you need to take action towards it. Mm, Yep. So last question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? So the real estate success in five minutes a day is birthing other books, (laughs) the 66 day challenge books of each component of the five minute success principle. So the commit to get leads 66 day challenge is out as is the consult to sell. And then there's two more coming, the connect to build and grow. That's about creating scale and systems and leverage. And then the other one, success thinking activities and vision. Those books are coming out in the next year. And also I'm expanding my coaching business. If people are interested in that, they can go to the website, the number Mm. five minute success and click on work with Karen and you can get a free 30 minute consult and May, I would look to, forward talking to people in your community who are interested in, in uh, how Five Minutes Success could help them. Fantastic. Well, I'll, I'll include that link in the show notes, ladies and gentlemen. And you'll have all the links so that you can learn all about Karen's books, the podcasts, the coaching, all of that. Well, listeners, there you have it, another story of loss to keep you winning. My number one goal for the next 12 months is to help you, my listener, reduce risks, and increase return in your life. To achieve this, I've created our community at myworstinvestmentever.com, and I look forward to seeing you there. As we conclude, Karen, I want to thank you again for coming on the show, and on behalf of Ace Dots Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? 
Yes, if I can do it, you can too. Love that. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.